We're second week into a series of messages. We're talking about connecting with God. And, you know, I, I, I kind of often say this because it's often true, but we might not talk about anything more important at Gateway than this series. For those of you who are visiting, my wife's name is Diane. She's the uh, cutest one in here. And when Diane and I first started dating, we started dating in 1980. We were five at the time. And why are you laughing? So immediately, you know, when I first met Diane, just the first night meeting her, I thought, she's little and she's really cute. And almost instantly, we started dating and seeing one another constantly. The most difficult time in our relationship, we had a great relationship that grew naturally over time. The most difficult time in our relationship was after we had been dating for two years and we were very serious with one another. I felt like God wanted me to do this. So I felt called to kind of learn more about how to do what I do, and I went to seminary. And the seminary that I went to was in Boston, Massachusetts, and Diane and I both lived in North Carolina, so I didn't ask her to marry me, and we didn't go together. I went to Boston, and she stayed in North Carolina, and it proved to be a very difficult time in our relationship. This was before Facebook. It was before Skype. So, I mean, we could talk on the phone some, and we did, but we never saw one another. And it ended up straining our relationship, and we actually ended up breaking up for several months. The same is true in your connection with God. You cannot have a relationship with God if you don't relate to God. Let's pray. As always, God, we need your help. We're slow of head and heart, and we're overly busy. We are preoccupied with ourselves, and really of necessity. We've just got a lot of things on our minds and hearts, and there's not a lot of space for you because you're such a gentleman, you don't demand it. You allow it. So we don't get this. We don't get you We don't get connecting with you. We don't experience the benefits of it. We don't experience the truth of it. We don't experience the bone-shattering transformation that comes from connecting with you unless you remind us and speak into our busyness. I ask that you would do that today. And in particular, Lord, I pray today that you would rivet our attention on the Bible and the importance of it. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, there are two habits that are indispensable in developing a connection with God. Two habits that are indispensable. We'll talk about the second habit next week. But the first and most important of those habits is to practice creative devotion. The habit of practicing creative devotion is indispensable to a connection with God. You can't have a relationship, you can't be connected to God if you don't relate to God. Last week, we started the series by saying, you have to nurture a real and dynamic connection to God in order to have a healthy soul. You have to nurture a real and dynamic connection with God in order to have a healthy soul. We read last week a provocative, if you were here, you'll remember, a provocative passage from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. At the end of that passage, Jeremiah offers a rich metaphor. Speaking for God, he said this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, 
the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And last week we talked about how that image is drawn from the agrarian culture around Jeremiah in the ancient Near East and Palestine in particular, a place where every farmer knows that the ideal place for a farm is a plot of land near a spring of water because you have this constant source of water by which you can you know, nourish your family and also your crops when the weather is bad because if you don't have a spring, then you've got to come up with some kind of elaborate system to provide water, especially in down times or in drought times. And usually that would happen by them digging very large vats or cisterns in the limestone hills around their farms, and those cisterns would then be lined with material that would allow it to hold rainwater. And so they would wait for the rain, and the water would collect, and their livelihoods depended on it. And occasionally, sometimes they wouldn't be built well, sometimes the limestone was not sturdy enough, or sometimes just over time they would wear down, the cisterns would begin to crack, and the water would leach out and spill into the groundwater, and all of that collected rainwater would go away, and they would lose crops, or they would get thirsty. We said by this image, the prophet Jeremiah was really suggesting three profound things. Number one, you and I have have a deep need to connect. In other words, to use Jeremiah's image, our souls are thirsty. We're like a farm in the ancient Near East. Secondly, we said Jeremiah is suggesting you and I will satisfy that need somehow. We will find a natural spring, or we will dig a cistern. We will find some source of water. We went further, and we said, we will truly satisfy that need through a connection with God, the living spring, or we will try to satisfy it through success, or through acquiring things, or through alcohol, or pornography, or eating, or romance, or whatever. We will satisfy our souls, or we'll try. And the third thing we said is the only reliable and sustainable satisfaction for our need is a connection with God. Jesus offered this teaching and we went to it. We went to this incredible exchange between Jesus and this woman where he ends up saying to her, look, I'm like that living spring. And through me, you get a real connection with God that will nourish you. We gave some homework At the end of it, we said, I want you to think about preparing for the Lenten season. Let's do it up this year at Gateway. Starts in the middle of February. And then I said, I want you to actually think this year about an accountability partner for yourself. Because as Terry said, we can't do this alone. So think about somebody, literally. No matter how weird or embarrassing it may feel, it will end up being life-giving. Think about somebody that you can meet with every other week. Let's grab breakfast or meet with them once a month or maybe you need to meet with them once a week where you kind of dial through your life and they can look across the table at you and you look across the table at them and say, are you loving your husband? Yeah, 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 I know, but I know he's a mess, but are you loving him? You can ask honest and hard questions of one another. It's an atmosphere that will encourage spiritual growth. We offered those three things up as homework, really for this whole month. Third thing we said was, find a devotional model and practice that works for you and work it. Set a goal for yourself. You can't have 
a relationship with God if you don't relate to God. So it's about figuring out how to do that and what that means for you. All right, today I want us to zero in, kind of trying to relate to God. And I say trying to relate to God because, look, nobody gets to be the person that's holy and spiritual if you think that this is easy. Nobody gets to be that person. If you think that, for instance, of me because I'm up on stage talking, then it only means that you don't know me very well. Nobody gets to be the person for whom this is, oh, I can't wait. I want to spend time with God all day long. Nobody gets to be that person. It takes effort on our part, but the effort is so worth it. So find a kind of devotional model and pattern that works for you and work it. Set a goal this year. Okay, that sets us up perfectly for today. If you're going to do that, we're going to make the point today elaborately. So if you miss everything else, don't miss this. We're going to make the elaborate point today that if you do that, a central part of that practice has got to be connected to the Bible. It's nourishing, it's life-giving, it's our guide. And at Gateway, we're convinced this is God's Word. So if you're going to build a devotional practice that will enable, encourage, facilitate your relationship with God, it's got to center around the Bible. Now, I'm going to spend the next little while proving that. Probably had in mind that somebody like me might feel that way anyway. But we're still going to kick a dead horse while he's down and make sure we get this point. And we're going to do that this morning by looking at one of the longest poems written in the ancient Near East. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's Psalm 119. We're not going to look at it all. We're really just going to helicopter in and take a few pieces and look at it. And what we're going to do is peel out of it four themes that relate to what we're talking about this morning. Now, you can't take themes like this out of poetry. It wasn't written like that. It's not, you know, it's not linear. He's not trying to make points. He's just expressing his heart. But out of the expression of his heart, you really can kind of glean some themes. And we're going to do that this morning to help us make this point, to make sure we get it. So we're going to look at Psalm 119. We're going to read four different sections of Psalm 119. And we're going to read it responsively to make sure we engage with it. This is the psalmist. This is an ancient Israelite hymn. That really, it's a riff on God's word. We're going to explain a little bit about what he means by God's word when he says that, when he refers to God's word in this passage. And again, we're going to peel off these four themes. I want you to know, leading into it, and go back and look at this later. It's really interesting. Hebrew poetry was... It's a fascinating process. Hebrew poets did not create poetry by rhyming. They had various mechanisms that they used to kind of indicate poetry and literary devices, let's say. Usually what they did was they would create poetry by repetition. But in the case of Psalm 119, he includes a lot of repetition in Psalm 119, but he also uses this really interesting literary device. He breaks it into kind of large stanzas, and those stanzas follow the Hebrew alphabet. So the first letter of the first stanza of Psalm 119 begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's almost like A, B, C, D, except it's the Hebrew alphabet, and the whole psalm is constructed that way. Again, we're going to pick some random sections to give us a feel for Psalm 119, and it'll also give us enough 
experience in this psalm to let us feel the, the themes of Psalm 119. So if you would, out of reverence for God's word, stand with me and let's read responsively from Psalm 119. So you'll notice up at the top, right-hand corner, uh, something that looks a little like a G. That's the Hebrew letter Mem. And it's roughly the equivalent of, say, in an English script, an M. So we'll do M, N, Q, and I can't remember what else. But I think there are four stanzas. There, there may be three. So I'll read the light print, and you read the dark print. And I want you to listen for these four themes. And I'm going to give you the themes. So I'll give you the outline for the rest of our time together. So this, these are the themes that I think you'll find are appealed to in this psalm. A, a creative devotional practice will be built on a supreme confidence in and love for God's word. Second theme, a creative devotional practice will involve great effort toward obedience. Thirdly, the practitioner of a creative devotional life will believe that he or she is benefited by God's word. And a fourth theme, practicing a creative devotional life centers on the habit of keeping God's word before your attention. So look for those as we go through this. I'll read the light print, you read the dark print. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. Now you'll notice that we go upper right, if you can see it, to Nun, which is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This is relative to the English alphabet, it's, this is the N. I won't do this every time, I promise. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I've got decisions to make, I've got things to do, and I, make, I choose a path. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. I call with all my heart, answer me, Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. So you'll notice he has set us up, right, for a kind of devotional practice here that the psalmist is engaging in. He was a very busy man. He might not have been busy as your typical Northern Virginian, but he was a very busy man. He had things to do, and yet he rises before dawn to cry for help. We get the substance of his cry somewhat in verses 145 and 146. This was his disciplined practice, not only so, but there were times when his eyes stayed open through the watches of the night. And you may know that phrase. That phrase would have been typical of the ancient world. There would have been times where someone was out marching around the city to protect the city and the city wall. And a watch would have been a period of keeping guard. So somebody would have been marching around from 2 to 3, and that would have been their watch. And then at 3... They pass it off, and the next person is marching around the city, watching. 
And through the watches of the night, the psalmist is saying, all through that, I'm looking to your promises. Okay. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your laws. I've seen what you've done. You know, I've seen how you are. As I look at your interactions with other people and I see what you've done in history, according to that, and you've made promises, according to that, preserve my life. Those who devise wicked schemes are near, but they're far from your law. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. You may be seated. So let's do a little damage to this poetry. Do what you're not supposed to do. Let's pick it apart. And I want to identify four themes for you real quick. Number one, a creative devotional practice will be built on a supreme confidence and love for God's word. Now, when he uses God's word, and he does use that phrase literally throughout Psalm 119, he also uses many synonyms, statutes, precepts, laws, decrees, commands, even wonders. I want you to listen to some other things that are related to his use of God's word. These are related ideas. God's promises, his unfailing love, and his salvation. Sometimes these things, his promises, his unfailing love, his salvation, sometimes they connection to God's word results in those things. Sometimes those are almost used as a synonym for God's word. God's promise is almost a synonym for God's word. His unfailing love is almost a synonym for God's word. In other words, sometimes word, God's word, and its synonyms seem to suggest an experience with God and not just literal words, but a larger connection to God. And sometimes word and its synonyms clearly refer specifically to the Bible. Here's what's fascinating about that. You know, this should tell us something. Historically, people who have had a deep and life-giving connection with God have always been people of the book. This is our source. This is our guide. This gives us the contours of our relationship with him, of our connection with him. In other words, you know, he's not arguing for the devotional life. He's assuming it. And He's saying this devotional life, now I'm getting into the fourth principle, but he's suggesting, just through his use of word and its cognates and its synonyms, he's suggesting that it centers on the Bible. If you have a creative devotional practice that really facilitates a real connection with God, it will be built on a supreme confidence and in love for God's word. Let me give you some verses that suggest that. I don't have these on the screen, but just listen. You read these, or, or I read them. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Verse 152, long ago I learned from your statutes. You established them, and they last forever. Verses 161 through 163, rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Uh, Verse 165, 
Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. A creative devotional practice will be built on a supreme confidence in and love for God's word. Second principle, a creative devotional practice will involve great effort toward holiness. A creative devotional practice will involve great effort toward obedience. Let me say it again. A creative devotional practice will involve great effort toward obedience. Let me read you some exemplary verses and then explain that just real quickly. But verses, for example, verses 101 and 102. I've kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I've not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. Verse 106. I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. Verse 110. The wicked have set a snare for me but I have not strayed from your precepts. Verse 112. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Verse 145. I call with all my heart, answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees, etc. 166 through 168. I like what John Bunyan, the old Puritan, said, prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. You can't have a disciplined, creative, devotional practice in your life and still be clinging to life-changing, life-diminishing attitudes and constant practice of your nurturing secret sin. They don't go together. A creative, devotional practice will involve great effort toward obedience. Now, this effort is not to earn a connection with God, but it creates a space for a connection with God. Those of you who don't know Diane and I, you may not know that we have three grown children. It's still hard for me to believe that they're grown. Diane still refers to them as the boys. And I know that from our relationship with the boys, there were, I started to say, huge periods of time in our lives, but there was never a time when this wasn't true. If my children never do what I say and never spend time with me, we will have no relationship. They will spend time with me, and when they ask for advice, and obviously as they've gotten older, this has become less and less true, but certainly when they were younger, they needed to do what I said. When they were very young, the age of some of your children, they had to do what I said for their own good. And I mean that both because, you know, we know better. We've lived longer. And also because they weren't going to live very long if they didn't. They had to do what I said. And if they didn't, our relationship would be strained. A creative devotional practice will involve great effort toward obedience. It just will. It will involve you in the effort of being a better person. God does not require that we earn a place with him. We can't earn it. But a relationship with God does require effort, as all relationships do. G.K. Chesterton, some of you know him and his writings. He was part philosopher, part poet, Christian author early in the 20th century. Chesterton said this, I love this quote, It's not so much that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, as it has been found difficult and left untried. Third theme that we need to peel out of Psalm 119, the practitioner of a creative devotional life 
will believe that she is benefited by God's Word. The practitioner of a creative devotional life will believe that she is benefited by God's Word. Let me give you some supporting verses here before we talk about that just real briefly. Verse 98 through 100. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Verse 104. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path so I can see where I'm going, etc. The practitioner of a creative devotional life will believe that she is benefited by God's word. Without such a belief, we will not maintain the practice of connecting to God. At first blush, something like this, if you stand back from it, it may sound somewhat self-serving or selfish, but I assure you it's a significant part of our connection, our devotional experience with God. If we don't have the sense that we're benefited, if we don't know this, that we're benefited, we will not maintain a devotional practice. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. Don't miss this. If there lurks in modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion crept in from Kant, the philosopher, and the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian faith. I'm going to say that again. If there lurks in the modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it, our own good, is a bad thing, I submit that this notion is from Kant or the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. (laughs) The practitioner of a creative devotional life will believe that she is benefited by God's word and that will drive her consistently to spend time in it because she knows That is the centerpiece in nurturing her connection, a real, life-giving, bone-shattering, transformative connection with God. Fourth, practicing a creative devotional life centers on the habit of keeping God's word before our attention. Everything we've said, you know, makes this obvious, but let's go through some verses here real quick. I won't give them all. 97b, I meditate on it all day long. 108, 109, accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws, though I... Constantly take my life in my hands. I will not forget your law. 147, 148. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises, etc. Practicing a creative devotional life centers on the habit of keeping God's word before your attention. I'm going to ask Mark Abraham Dean Salami if they would come up here and uh, grab a stool. So practicing a creative devotional life centers on the habit of keeping God's Word. I'm not saying that you connecting to God is all about a Bible study. It involves many other things. Terry mentioned this morning the the need to connect with other people. There's also the need to learn how, and it's difficult work, but to learn how to really pray. 
Prayer is the most, it's the simplest thing in the world, and it's also the most difficult. And then there are many, many other creative practices that encourage a connection with God. Psalm 119 talks about some of those and some interesting ways to do it. For some of you, it will involve listening to inspiring music because that nourishes your soul. For others of you, it's silence and just getting away from your phone and all screens and just trying to reflect. You know, the unexamined life is not worth living and you'll spend time reflecting or for some of you, it's writing. But it has to center around God's word or it will not ultimately be nourishing in the long run. Okay, so gentlemen, I ask you to be up here because I've known both of you for a while. You, Dean, longer than I care to remember. And I know something of your practice of this in your life. And I appreciate it and admire it. Real quick, Dean, 60 seconds. What does it look like for you to practice a creative devotional life? Literally, how do you do, what do you do and how do you do it? Most of that is spent getting into God's Word. I spend a lot of time in God's Word looking for aspects of God's character and how it speaks to me and then how he wants me to be able to interact with both. When do you do it? Oh, I do it early in the morning. So you wake up first thing? First thing. For you, is it most days? I try and do it every day. If I miss a day, I'm not a good man. So. Okay. Dean, there are large parts of the Bible that are boring. That's because you don't see it in context. <laughs> okay, so 30 seconds. What do you mean? What I found is the things that I found boring was things that I just didn't understand. So a lot of times in, like, let's say Leviticus, those ridiculously boring passages, what we actually see God doing is showing us a bit of heaven and how it's set up and what he's requiring. So when you begin to understand that, it takes on a completely different look. And what I've appreciated about Dean over the years, here's the thing. Let's all admit, it's not easy. For one thing, the text of the Bible itself is thousands of years removed from us. So not only is it the effort of looking at it itself, but you have to really nourish your soul, there has to be some study involved. You've got to understand, as Dean's saying, the context. Those of you who've had the practice over the years, you know, you're not going to, it will not nourish you. I can't even remember what it is, but there's an old joke about, you know, somebody does that, and they go to a passage where somebody is killing themselves, and then they do it again, and go that and do likewise. It can't be about, there's got to be some effort involved in knowing this world. But it's worth it. So, Dean, you spend time, you try to do it every day, and you break up in the Bible. What do you do? You're reading a passage. What do you do? I've always believed early on that by just reading, it can create a devotional life for you because there are questions that passages beg, and then I go chase them down. For instance, what do you mean? Let's take, for instance, when the Bible said in Exodus, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ah, what in the world does that mean? Exactly. And you've got to chase that and down. i got to chase that down. Okay. All right. And you chase that down. What happens in here? You're chasing that down. You come up with something. And what? One of the things I ask the question, what does this mean about God in terms of his character? Because I believe, like you were rightly saying, you can't have a good relationship with God unless you relate with him. So his character is of utmost importance to me. And I know that the Bible makes very concrete statements. God does whatever he wants within his character. So I want to know first and foremost what that means for his character than from what he wants, what I see that, what he wants me to see, and how he wants me to behave. Mark, your practice has just 
embarrassed me at times in its consistency and its richness. So what do you do for your devotional life? Well, I have a uh, devotion book, Ed, that I think Julie gave me a number of years ago. And it, when you say a number of years ago, you mean... 20, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Something okay, like that, yeah. yeah, maybe even longer than that. So, okay. it, uh, it so just, y'all were 10 or 11 when she yeah, gave thank you this? You. Yeah, yeah, something like okay. that. Okay, all right. And it takes me through daily uh, readings in the New Testament. It's uh, by days, and then it has some application uh, verses in the Old Testament. And well, I brought the book actually with me. It's been worn after 20 years. Is it seven and, uh, days a week? It is seven days a week. I don't consistently... I'm gonna, it's going to fall apart, actually. Okay. So it, it takes me through every day. And so I've been journaling for 20 years as well. So when I read the scripture verse, I can look back at actually what I read um, you know, years ago and what I commented on. And uh, what I try to do each morning, too, is before I read, I try to pray, uh, if I can, about the things that are going to happen during the day. Lord, you know what's going to transpire today in my work day. Um, because my he does. Life. Because he does. And, you know, point me to something that you want me to read today that's going to help me out in your word. And so it's been something consistent that I do first thing in the morning. Get up, I have my nook, I have my coffee. I have a special place in the house that I, you know, and something that I'm hooked to and I long to, to do every day. And I appreciate your words here that really uh, reinforces. It's not, it, mine isn't that creative. Mine's kind of simple. Well, it's not that still creative. creative. Yeah. You got your cup of coffee. Can I, I didn't ask your permission to do this, but can I just flip that open and let them see? This is not to brag on Mark. This is to brag on Jesus. I know you can't see. That is like font <laughs> .5, and he's written... It's massive. Now, you also told me one time when you, you and I met for a while, Mark, to do some of that accountability stuff, and you told me one time that you've had the experience, you've been journaling for so long, some of that journaling also just involves your day, and you've reflected back on those in the past, and how has that worked for you? Yeah, thanks. That's, you, you know what I'm getting at? Well, it's, it's a different journal. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, this is the other one. So that's more of just a personal journal where I'm writing to the Lord things that may have happened the day before, Ed, things that I'm thankful for, things that were difficult, things that are before me that day. Things. How that does that help you, Mark? It just helps me in my communication, I think, with the Lord. It helps me to document things. It helps me to document things that I've been thankful for. And then it gives me the benefit of looking back in the past. Like if I had quiet time this morning, I could look back on January 11th, in previous years, what I journaled about, things that were difficult that he carried me through with, things that were going on with my kids. They have to put up with me, too, because I journal things that have been difficult with my family, things that have been great. And, you know, oftentimes in the morning I'll send them a text, maybe while they're in college or wherever. You know, 10 years ago, this was going on in your life. So they have to put up with my text messages early in the morning. (laughs) Uh, I don't necessarily text them the difficult things. We should get Jen up here. Or I ask them questions, you know, eight years ago today, who did you have that slept over, what girlfriend slept over? You're kidding me. You don't really Of gosh. Of course, they have no idea. They get them right oftentimes. (laughs) Okay. But it's just been a consistent thing that I've been doing for years uh, in terms of journaling and been beneficial. Being over the long term. Quickly, how are you benefited? It's funny because... Just recently, well, within the last year or so, 
I know I'm gifted as a teacher. That's one of my spiritual gifts. And God is showing me how to be able to use that in the workplace, how I do that. And it's just amazing to me how by just allowing myself to spend that time with God, it's refocusing and redirecting how I see everything about life. You know, my tendency is to compartmentalize things. And so I could say, you know, this is my devotional life and then this is my, my work life. But God has, has been bridging that together for the last several years and has been showing me some really powerful stuff. Mark, how have you been benefited? I think just by having my heart set in the right place every day. I think for me, my work environment has been a joy robber for me for most of my life. You know, the Lord has provided well for me, but I think just having my quiet devotion time in the morning, something that kind of sets my heart and attitude correctly for each and every day. Thank you. Yes. Okay, it's certainly the case. The psalmist talks about various times and various ways he pursues God. We have to do the same thing. But it really, it needs to be centered around God's Word. And that's an encouragement. to I've appreciated the devotional life of many of you, but if it has become your practice, your considered practice, over long periods of time, for you to read someone else's devotional thoughts, there's a zillion of them, and they're awesome. They give you a verse of Scripture, and then they have a story and a real moving thing at the end, and sometimes you will copy me on those things. They're wonderful. But you, you have to do, if you want to build that connection, you have to do some of your own maintenance. You have to walk some of your own mile. You've got to do it yourself. I'm telling you, it will nourish your soul. You don't wake up every morning, and Mark and Dean don't, I guarantee it. You don't wake up every morning or three days a week. Whatever your goal is this year. You don't wake up and go, oh, I can't wait. Oh, let me turn to Leviticus. Oh, that's going to change. Oh, that changes my day. It doesn't happen like that. There is effort involved, but the effort is worth it. And not only is the effort worth it, you cannot have a healthy soul apart from some kind of practice like that. So if you find yourself joyless, if you find yourself angrier than you have a right to be consistently, if you find yourself adrift from purpose, if you find yourself constantly going to your secret sin, you're not spending quality relational time with God. You're not. Let me end. You know, obviously there are seasons of life. I heard some guy a number of years ago, who's one of these futurists. I love this guy. I love the way he thinks. I went to a seminar where he was speaking. It was awesome. You know, he kind of says these things are mind-blowing. And it's not just about technology. It's trends in society. But this is quite a few years ago. And there's a large group of, most of them were pastors. And so he says, I want you to raise your hand if you're under 40. I remember this because at the time I was 40, I raised my hand anyway, I lied. And I raised your hand if you're 40, I raised my hand. He said, here's the thing, you know, stuff is happening so rapidly today, and, you know, and it's going to over the next 15 years, the, the changes in medicine and blah, 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 blah. You are in all likelihood going to live to be 90, and maybe even effectively. So we've got to start thinking and training our people to think differently. We've got to think 
about, you know, it's got to be a new paradigm, and we've got to get ahead of this. We've got to train our people to think this way. The old American model of, you know, working, and then I'm going to retire and play golf or whatever. We've got to retrain our folks. We've got to start training our folks to realize that the first 30 years of your life, it's about training and education. The next 30 years of your life is about career and work and family, if you have a family, especially if you have kids. That can fill up the time. The last 30 years of your life is all about the kingdom of God. So you're all out. You've got nothing but him. So give it all for him. Well, obviously, those of you who are on the back end, let me do it this way for your benefit. Those of you who are on the back end of that, you may not want me to celebrate that this morning, but I do. Because this is a word and a challenge to you. We have more time and energy at our discretion. Use that time for the kingdom of God. Don't spoil that time. Don't throw it away. Don't fritter that time on yourself. It will not feel purposeful. It will not nourish a healthy soul. Now those of you who are in the middle of that, you're busy. I remember how busy you are. You are really busy, especially if you have kids. Do it anyway. Do it in a way that's modified. You may not be able to throw yourself as all in as a person who has, you know, who has this much discretionary time, but you have time. Think about how much time you're watching television. I love television. I'm not telling you to turn your television off. But I'm telling you to use your time wisely. Devote yourself to this. It will change you. And it will change your family. It will change the history of all who come from you. And those of you who are at the front end of that, what an incredible opportunity. You're still in the training mode. Make this part of your training. You need to be trained in this. This will make all the difference in your life. So, homework. Let's do Lent this year. Let's really do it. I want you thinking now. How are we going to give ourselves sacrificially to simplicity and to being all in in our connection with God during the Lenten season? What are we going to do as a family? What are we going to do as individuals? Secondly, I want you to literally think, don't just listen, let this be one of those Ed things. I want you to literally think about finding someone who could be an accountability partner for you and asking you the tough questions and you saying the tough things to them about them and about yourself. We're not talking about police work here. The spiritual life is not about police work. I'm not trying to go out and find stuff you're doing wrong. I don't care. I'm too selfish, and I've got enough stuff wrong with me. We're talking about accountability. We're talking about you asking someone, look, walk alongside with me because I like every other week the volume of anger in my household is ridiculous. I don't know why. I need help. Or, can you walk alongside of me? I've got this secret sin that I'm nurturing. And it's crazy. Don't be embarrassed and ashamed of that. The other person you're talking to probably does too. Just open it up, bring it into the light, and let's walk, walk alongside one another. Third, find a devotional model and pattern that works for you and work it. Set a goal this year. What's your goal? Those of you who are in the training period of your life, get trained. 
Those of you in the middle, busy years of your life, you're too busy not to do this. You need this. There are too many joy robbers, as Mark said. Thanks for that phrase, Mark. For you not to have this. And when you don't have this over the long term, I know what happens. It happens to me too. And you end up in my office or someone like me. Oh, you know, I don't know what's wrong. I don't even believe anymore. Well, of course you you don't have a relationship. You're not connected. Let's get connected. Okay. One of the awesome signs that's offered to us, one of the mechanisms for connecting for us are acts of worship. That's why we gather here. And don't just do it on our own. And one of those is this. So let's have a mercy meal. If you are visiting today, if you can do this in your fellowship, if you're connected to a fellowship, uh, you can do it here. I want to especially invite those of you who are Christ followers. Uh, This is a meal for us. If you're not a Christ follower, I want you to know that Jesus is the source of living water. He's where we go to drink. This story is about him. That's why we read it. So if you're not connected to him and you sense that you need to be, do that work right now. I'll offer that in a minute. Do that work right now. If you do that here, I'd love to hear about it afterwards. Okay, remain standing. Look, let's don't go, let's don't come to this meal unless we deserve it. There's only one way to deserve it. (laughs) You, You don't deserve it by earning it. You deserve it by saying, I am so sorry. Listen, here are some ways, God, that I'm aware of right now that I have completely disconnected from you. I have not only dug cisterns of my own making, I have made them pretty and I planted shrubbery around them. And they're not working. So forgive me. And let's you and I do our thing this morning, God. Let's take that prayer to God right now. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you. We have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have sought our meaning and our purpose and our pleasure in other things. We humbly ask this morning that you'd forgive us and for the sake of your son Jesus, that you'd have mercy on us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray, and all God's people said, you may be seated. This morning, you get to be priest to the person next to you. So these plates are going to be passed around to you. Can you hand me one, John? Here's what you'll do. You'll look at the person next to you and you'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. How cool is that? All right, let's say that together. The body of Christ broken for you on three. One, two, three. The body of Christ broken for you. The body of Christ broken for you. So they're going to take these and go down the rows and pass them down. You'll take it, grab one, hold it, and you'll pass it to the next person and say, the body of Christ broken for you. And in that way, you'll be priest to the person next to you. Let's pass the body of Christ. The body of Christ broken for you. Take it and eat. This meal first happened on the last night of Jesus' life. He took a piece of bread and said that. And then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood. 
shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's try that together on three. One, two, three. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, be a priest to one another. In case you didn't notice, when I was putting my microphone back on, I spilled the blood of Christ on the front of my sweater. And <laughs> I thought, you know, that's really appropriate. I won't ask you to, but we should probably take this and pour it on the front of our clothes and wear the blood of Christ for the world to see. Because that's what we do. Through our character, we wear the blood of Christ. Blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for your patience and staying over extra. Go in peace and remember to speak to someone that you don't know well before you leave. It was great having you today. Your homework is prepare for Lent, find an accountability partner, and do it up with devotions no matter what stage of life you're in. Great having you.